Well, I join Pastor Kevin and Elder Tim in, in uh, welcoming you, thanking you for bringing the church into these rooms. And I love doing it in this uh, time of year. You know, in the church calendar, this is epiphany. It's the epiphany season. You know likely what an epiphany is. It's when something comes to you like something that you knew, but you forgot that you knew. And then something happens that makes you aware that you knew and it changes your perspective on everything. And epiphany in the church calendar is the reminder that the savior has come, that God has made him known to us and that we can live out what we've been singing about in real time, we can see Jesus in real time in this earth today. We can look for him, we can watch for him. In the Christmas story, which you know we're still in the Christmas season as we enter into Epiphany, it's the place where the Magi, those wise men and their entourage came from Persia to see the toddler Jesus. Now, I hate to mess up your nativity scene at home, but you've already taken that down anyway. Some of you have, but the, the wise men came and that was the beginning of the epiphany. They came to see Jesus and they saw Jesus. Last night, young man I met in the foyer told me an epiphany joke. You ready for this? Think about it. So what do you give someone who has everything and needs nothing? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I thought it was pretty good. He was 11 years old. Took me a minute too to get it. But so what about epiphany for us today? How, how many things still bring those wow moments in your life that Tim and Kevin were talking about? How many times do you look for Jesus showing up in places that you least expect him? I've got a group of guys that I meet with every week and we made a determination, not a resolution, but we determined that we're going to spend this season, uh, this epiphany season that goes up to Ash Wednesday, looking for Jesus, looking for small ways that we can see our big God. And so I've been paying closer attention over the last week or so of ways that Jesus shows up in the most unusual ways. I've seen that in meetings that have taken place even here on our campus at Northland. We had a meeting just a couple of days ago with an organization called International Cooperating Ministries. And you know, we already, our children's curriculum is spread out all over the world through your generosity. It's been translated into multiple languages, the same curriculum that our children go through here uh, every Sunday when you bring them and, and take them to class. That curriculum is being distributed all over the place. Maribel and others have gone and trained people in Cuba and other, in other countries in, in, in the Middle East in places that we can't even really say where they've been but have gone and trained workers in using that equipment, that, that curriculum, I mean, it is equipment. Uh, but this week, so we, we came into this relationship with International Cooperating Ministries. They have 8,000 churches around the world. They're gonna to begin to use our children's curriculum in all 8,000 of their churches that are all around the world in so many languages. And one of the most amazing parts of it, and we can't say publicly the whole story here, but as you know, there are a number, there are 1.2 million Syrian refugees in Lebanon. They are in camps there. 
Well, guess who is going to provide the primary education in teaching reading and writing through the curriculum that was birthed here? You are. We are, we are going to be doing this in the coming months in March. Uh, now I've told it, but uh, we're gonna, we'll be sending a small team to Lebanon to train workers there who will then train these children and, and teaching them to read and write. And why not use the Word of God to do that? Isn't that amazing to do that? Well, that's Jesus. You see that? That's epiphany. We couldn't have figured that out ourselves. We're not that smart. We're not able to figure out how to make those relationships. God makes those relationships for us. I could go on and on. Meg Johnson, who is a Seminole County probation officer, is also the person who leads our one-to-one hope ministry. Uh, She and a team of dedicated volunteers, some of whom are right here in this room, do intervention into the lives of women who have been sexually trafficked right here in Central Florida. Meg sat in my office just a couple of days ago telling me stories that are amazing that happen right here in Central Florida and ways that this congregation is coming around some of these, some of these women who have been through desperate situations. That's Jesus. That's an epiphany. That's Jesus arranging for us to be in those lives that otherwise we would normally, we would not in any normal way have a connection with. That's Jesus. That's epiphany. Epiphanies can be grand and they can be small, but they change our perspective if we're able to open our eyes enough to see them. And so during this epiphany season, how will you look for Jesus? You can find epiphanies sometimes in the most mundane ways as well. Do you remember Thursday morning how cold it was here in Central Florida? I know our friends in Fargo, North Dakota are just laughing at us when we say we have a cold morning, but it was really cold on Thursday, right? We're tender people here when it comes to that. And I went out Thursday morning early. I meet with a group of guys down in Winter Park and and I got in my car and realized, man, it is really cold. And I had not adequately dressed for for the cold. And I got in my car and there's a button on the dash of my car that I have never pushed. And I looked down and saw that this button had a little seat on it, a seat emblem. And for the first time since I've owned this car, call me an idiot, but the first time ever, I pushed that button and nothing happened initially, but then in about 30 seconds, something wonderful (laughs) began to happen. Can you guess what it was? Now, I don't want to leave any kind of mental image with you here, but uh, that you won't be able to forget all day, but I'll I'll just tell you that uh, for about 10 minutes, it was wonderful. It was an epiphany to me that all I had to do was push that button and get warm and get warm really fast. And then that becomes a problem, you know, because then it led to another thing. I had another epiphany that I needed to turn the button off because I'd had enough of it. But that's sometimes how epiphanies work, that they wake us up to something and we make the change But that wakes us up to something else, which leads me to the passage that we want to read together today in Philippians chapter 3. And so if you have your Bible, you can have an electronic Bible, you can read it in the worship guide, 
uh, you can, uh, you, it's okay to still bring uh, Bibles here if you want to. And I encourage you to read along with me just to make sure that I'm not making this stuff up because this is too good for it to not be true. So let me read for you this text. As you know, we're in Philippians and you remember that this, the uh, whole tone and message of this letter to the church is one of great joy. And so here's what Paul writes in chapter three, verse one of Philippians. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Let me just pause for a second here and say, you, again, joy is the whole theme of this letter. Paul has this characteristic when he writes letters to the New Testament churches, what he does is he always comes to this place. He does it in Galatians, Ephesians, in Philippians, I mean, in Philippians as well as Colossians and the letter to the Romans. And he comes to some place as he's wrapping up the letter, you know, and instead of writing sincerely, Paul, he writes, finally, meaning he's, he's about to finish here. Now, I know you, when I say finally, that doesn't mean much to you. You know I'm still going to talk for a while. But when Paul writes finally, it always means that he's going to do two things. He's going to give you his main point again, and then he's going to end the letter. And so he writes, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. But then Paul doesn't end the letter there. In fact, something different happens than happens in any other letter that he writes to the church. And what he does is he thinks of something. He has an epiphany in this moment. And then from here, from Philippians 3, 2, and you know, they didn't use these chapter and verse numbers when they were, he was writing the letters, but, but when from that place to Philippians 4, 8 is like a parenthesis in his letter. He goes off on a whole different tangent in the letter because he has this epiphany and he remembers something that he needs to tell the church at Philippi. And so that's what he does in these next verses. And so he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you, and it's a safeguard for you, he says. And then here's what it is. Let me just tell you, Paul is ticked off by this point. He's thought about it a little bit, and he's ticked off because he's, he has to give them a warning. He says, look out for the dogs. Now, he's not talking about Georgia. And I know for us, when you hear dogs, you think, oh, dogs, cute, you know, waiting for you at the door, wagging their tail, just want to be fed. That's not what he's talking about. This is the worst thing Paul could say about Jew, Jewish people, a Jewish person. Look out for the dogs. He means it. It's offensive language. He means to offend. Rare for Paul, for Paul of uh, the Apostle Paul, not rare for Saul of Tarsus, rare for Paul the Apostle. Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, why would he write this? Why would he go on this tangent, if you will? This frustrated, angry word that he writes to them. Well, Paul is remembering all of this thing that he's encountered everywhere he's gone to establish a church. Every time he has established a church and then entrusted it to local leadership, the same process has happened. This group of Jewish men will come in and he calls, they call them Judaizers, who say, oh yeah, this is all well and good. You might sing Christ is your cornerstone. You might say your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, but that's not really the deal. Here's the deal. You have to obey. You have to do all of the ceremonial law that is listed for us in the, in the Torah. You have to do over 680 ceremonial laws that you have to uh, accomplish, one of which is circumcision. Now, Paul is frustrated by this because they are taking, they are adding to the gospel. The kingdom has come, the gospel has been announced, and they are taking it back and saying, no, you can't have it yet. You can only have it once you do these things that we say you have to do. It's sort of like they're saying, we had to do them, and so you have to do them. It's ceremonial, though. And so Paul, in saying this to them, is using this strong language because these men, these Judaizers, these dogs, are deceivers. They're deceptive, and that frustrates Paul. These are people who are inside the camp. Of Christianity. These are people who should be helping to establish believers. And instead, they are cutting in and cutting out and mutilating and confusing and making the gospel something that it never was intended to be, not even that Jesus intended for it to be. And Paul is angry because of that. And I tell you, it should make us angry. Anytime we see anyone or anything coming in between the true gospel of Jesus Christ that keeps people away from the freedom that Jesus intends for us to have in him and in salvation through Christ alone, just what we've been singing about today. It's not unlike, you remember a few years ago, and I hate, again, I'm, I've, I'm reluctant to even remind you of this. You remember that song, Who Let the Dogs Out? <laughs> I thought you would. Well, I actually thought about titling this sermon, Who Let the Dogs Out? And then I went back and read the lyrics to that song, don't do it, don't do it. It's a deceptive song. I love the chorus. I mean, I go around in my car all the time when I see a dog, there's something like Pavlov in me that gets triggered that I start singing that chorus, you know, just to get to the, uh, you know the song, you know, but it's, it's a horrible song. I mean, it's a horrible song. The lyrics are awful. Don't Google it. I know some of you are doing it right now, stop it. <laughs> It's a horrible song, and, and I t and it's, but it's deceptive because it just pulls you in because it's catchy. You know, it's catchy, and 
we like to sing it, and so it pulls you in. That's what's happened here. Paul's saying, who let these dogs out? They're deceptive. They're deceiving you, and, and you need to not pay attention to them. And, and so Paul knows this deal because he's, he's done this before. Again, you can read about this in Galatians chapter 2. You can read about it at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. You can read how they even came in the name of James. James, the brother of Jesus, a towering figure in the church, wrote the letter that we have in our New Testament. That James was associated with it initially, although he, he later spoke against it. Uh, it's a, it's, there's an incredible drama that we don't have time to go into today, but an incredible drama where in that Acts 15, where Peter, the apostle Peter, even gets caught up in this same thing that, and, and starts agreeing with the Judaizers, stops eating with the Gentiles. And Paul says, you got to appreciate this about Paul. I mean, the little man, he was a little man, and, and, but he was a strong-hearted little man. And he, Paul stands up to Peter, and he says, yeah, I openly confronted Peter in Jerusalem about this and changed Peter's mind. I mean, there was a lot of drama that went on in those days. These were real people living out a real-time situation where they were trying hard, fighting hard for the gospel to remain pure and to be given freely to all who would receive it. And everywhere along the way, all these obstacles would come in, and Paul knew the end game. The end game of the Judaizers was this, was that if they could have a righteousness that was uh, on the outside, they would not worry about a righteousness that comes from the inside, which that's the kingdom, that's the gospel. It's from the inside out, not from the outside in. Anytime we take any kind of form of Christianity and make it about how we can look good, appear good, appear holy, but there's no work going on on the inside, then we have missed the point. And that's what Paul is saying. They're missing the point. And this is an enemy from within our camp. And so that's even why Paul went through his own credentials for them. Paul wanted to be sure that I'm not just, I'm not talking here without, as, as a man without knowledge. And, and in, the, in Philippians here, where he goes through the, the credentials that he himself has, he says, so if you want to talk about a resume, let me just tell you my resume. He starts with this. I was circumcised on the eighth day, meaning I'm not a newcomer to this. I know what the Judaizers are after here, you know, and, and I followed the, this was done, I inherited this. It was strictly within accordance with the Jewish law. I was circumcised on the eight day, eighth day of the people of Israel, as of the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah were the most highly regarded tribes in the Davidic line that led one day to the Messiah. And so Paul is saying, I, can't, I inherited this, and it's a benefit that I have just as a part of my inheritance. You know, in modern day times, it's kind of like being born in Kentucky. You're just fortunate if that happens to you, you know. But you can't, thank you, yeah. But you can't really take it. I see the Gator fans out there too. I know what happened last night. But, um, but this is just, he's just saying, I inherited this. This is just, a, you know, something that was bestowed upon me. 
in the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. What he's getting at here is there were Jews in that day who blended in to uh, the Greek culture. They were called Hellenistic Jews. They adopted Greek practices in their worship and, be, and became a part of their lifestyle and their culture. They conformed to that culture. Aren't you glad that doesn't happen in our day and time? You know, they, they conform to that culture. And so he's saying, I didn't conform. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. He goes on to say, as to the law, a Pharisee. Paul was highly educated in Jewish law. Uh, he was a student of Gamaliel and one of the, the most highly regarded rabbis that they would have known. They knew his credentials in, in that. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, meaning he didn't just speak out against this new form of religion called Christianity. He intended to squash it. It was his goal, his job, his calling, and he thought within his holiness, his righteousness, to squash the church. He was a persecutor of the church. And so as to righteousness under the law, as far as meeting the demands of the relationship, righteousness under the law, blameless. Pretty impressive credentials, and Paul is using them for a reason. But you know, I could not read that to you and stop there. The next week, we go on to part B of this, where Paul flips this paradigm completely. But I can't leave you at verse 6. I have to read verse 7 and 8 for you. Because right after he goes through this list of credentials, he writes this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul was saying, I lay down my resume because it means nothing. We'll talk about that more next week. But he's doing this because he longs for not just the, the church that's being formed in its infancy, he longs even for the dogs, the Judaizers, to know this. And he will later ask them, lay down your resume, lay down those credentials because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Christ alone as your cornerstone. Paul would have learned this from Jesus himself. In Matthew 23, Jesus himself spoke out against this. In observing how the Pharisees were relating to the people, Jesus said this, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbis by others. In other words, they were literally wearing their religion on their, on their sleeves. 
You know what a phylactery is? It's, it's a little leather box that they would take and they would attach those little leather boxes to themselves, to their, to their hats and to their hair. And inside those leather boxes were scripture verses that had been words from the Torah that they would write down because it says in Deuteronomy 11:18, fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Now, when God said that to his people, he was speaking metaphorically, you know, like put this deep inside yourself, put it where you will not forget it in your mind and in your soul. And they, and what they did is instead they wanted to show off. They wanted to show it off. And so they put, they, that's, that's what Jesus was referring to here. He ended up calling them whitewashed sepulchers, whitewashed tombs, that on the outside, they look great. They figured out the whole external form of looking holy and righteous. But inside, they were dead. Brothers and sisters, we can't let that happen to us. And Paul was afraid that that was what was going to happen to these, this church at Philippi because he starts finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. But then he gets, but then he stops and he goes back and thinks, but here's something that could rob you of your joy. Don't let it happen. What robs you of your joy? Think about that for a moment. What robs you of your joy? Well, usually it's when we think we know what we're in pursuit of, but somebody moves our cheese, right? And, and we lose track of what it is we're trying to get to. Jesus, in fact, wanted to be sure that we understand that there nowhere, and Paul wanted to be sure that this is not by saying, follow the spirit, not the law, that it was not a lowering of a bar that he was talking about. In fact, Paul and, and Jesus made that exceedingly clear. Jesus made it clear in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount where he reminds us, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people put, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The bar has not been lowered by saying you are free, the bar has been raised by saying you are free. Because scripture goes on to say that whoever the son sets free, S-O-N, son, is free indeed. But our freedom 
is something that we're willing to, sac- to, to lay down for the smallest of things because we lower the bar. I've got, I think, a, a good illustration of this. When I was in middle school, uh, I was not a stellar athlete, but I tried hard. Uh, I played baseball. I have two older brothers who were great baseball players, and I always was kind of following their footsteps. And so I got put on teams because of my name, because they saw, they knew my brothers were great baseball players. And so they just assumed by genetics that I would be as well. And, uh, and I, I wasn't, I wasn't that great, but I had a lot of fun, uh, hanging out with the rest of those guys. And one day my coach, my baseball coach, who was also our track and field coach in our junior high school, we had junior high school then, he was, he was coach of both things. And uh, Coach Stevenson said to me one day, uh, Rainwater, you should come out for the track and field team. And I said, awesome. And I, I went home thinking, man, he must, I must have impressed him with how fast I run around the bases on the rare occasions that I run around the bases and must have really impressed him, you know? And and so I asked him when the practice was and he told me and and so I showed up that day and I realized pretty quickly that you don't try out for the track and field team, you're just on it. Anybody that shows up is just on the team, at least it was in that back then. And so I show up and and he, he puts us all, me and a bunch of other guys, and he puts us through, gives us several options of things we can do and including we could run a short distance and he figured out quickly that I was not able to run a short distance quickly enough to be on that uh, squad. Uh, My legs were too short, that that was what I figured. And then he said, well, it's okay because you can run a long way maybe. And so uh, he put us out on this long run but I got tired uh, pretty quickly and so I turned around and came back and I said, I I don't think that's my sport either, you know. and so then he said, well, you can, there's a thing we do, you can jump, a broad jump, you can jump along, if you can jump a long way, you could do that. I tried that, that didn't work out either. And then he came back a, few, a little later and he says, I got the perfect thing for you, pole vaulting. Yeah, and, and I knew about pole vaulting because at that time in, in uh, pole vaulting history, uh, the United States was the pole vaulting champions uh, all around of the world. They won the Olympics in that era. I won't tell you when that era is. It, Google doesn't go back that far. And, um, but we were, so I'd watched it in the Olympics, on the Olympics, on TV. I'd watched it on TV. I'd seen other people do it at our local university. And I thought, you know, I think I could do this because here's what I figured. You got this really long pole and I had a fairly short body. And so I thought, well, it's got to work. Physics got to take over here somewhere. If I just hold on to that pole and let go at the right time, then I'll probably make it over the bar. And, and on this particular day, he had had a pole vaulting guy from the university come to show us, to teach me and some other guys how to pole vault. And so taught, you know, gave us a pole, showed us how to do the hand placement, where to put our hands, worked with us in slow motion of this metal plate in the ground where we'd plant the pole and then he said, you just got to, it's all in timing, boys. You just got to ride that pole up and, and clear the bar and let go at the right time. You know, it's all in timing, you know. And so um, we all said, great. And so then um, these, a couple other guys did it first. You know, they set the bar at, a, at one level. And these guys, two guys ahead of me, they went and they cleared the bar. You know, I thought, looks pretty good. looks pretty easy. I think I got this. So I go running as fast as I can, because that's what he said, run as fast as you can, you know, and plant the pole. I planted the pole. I went up a little ways. There's a problem. 
uh, I think it's called gravity, and, um, and I just kind of went back down this way. I didn't, I didn't have enough momentum, you know? And so I went back to the coach and I said, I think you must have left something out of the training. You know, I, I don't think you equipped me for how to, how to make sure I have enough momentum. It's, it's all about, it's, you said it's all about timing. I think it's all about momentum. Yeah, and so let's try it again and teach me, some, teach me a little better. And so he worked with me a little more on it and I did it again. I went running down through there and, and I uh, got, made it up. This time I didn't fall backwards. This time I just fell straight down. I, I took it as a little bit of progress. I mean, you know, at least I didn't go back, you know, and so I took it as progress. And so let's just say that rather than keep you here all afternoon, that I, it didn't work. It didn't work for me. And so I, I finally did, every time that the, the coach would come by and see how I was doing, he would just say, lower the bar, just lower the bar a little further. Finally, he lowered the bar far enough that I, I could have stepped over the bar, but I did get over the bar. And he came up to me after that and said, I think you just need to come back to baseball, which is what I did, and it was a wise thing to do. But my point is this, that we can lower the bar so far that, yeah, we can get over it, but have we really accomplished anything in doing that? Is that really the life that we want? Is that really what we want to have known about who we are? Is that really what God's called us to? No, Jesus has set the bar really high. You need to know that. I mean, you study, you look at the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus would be saying, now you've heard it said, you know, that if you, uh, if you, do certain things that you've sinned. I want to tell you, if you think certain things, you've sinned. I mean, Jesus didn't lower the bar. He raised the bar in terms of what righteousness is. But then here's the wonderment of the gospel. But then Jesus says, but I have come and I fulfilled all those demands, all the demands of the law. I raised the bar. And then I cleared the bar on your behalf and you are with me. If you're in Christ, you get over the bar with him. And so again, back to our text, Paul is saying, you know, don't let these guys convince you otherwise. In Romans 8, he makes it really clear when he writes to that church, he says, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. You follow the spirit. You follow a presence. It is the presence of God. You and I are not required to follow the law. We're given the blessing, the privilege, the gospel message of following the spirit, the presence. Now, it's easier in some ways to follow the law, and we know why people do that, because you can check it off. 
You can say, I did that. Got that one done. Check it off. You don't have to do the work, the internal work that it requires to follow the presence of God. It also is a way that we can compare ourselves to other people and say, well, you know, I didn't get this right, but did you see what she did? You know, I'm not that bad. You know, the law gives us that opportunity to do that. When that is not how God measures our hearts, God doesn't look at us and compare us to one another. I mean, he only compares us to his son and he sees us through the blood of Jesus shed for us and it changes everything. And so how do we do this? How do we get ourselves away from just this external way of measuring holiness? Well, we change the, again, the paradigm and next week is part B of this where we'll really look at how Paul teaches us to do this. But let me give you just a little piece of that right now. As I wrap this up, David Brooks, a New York Times columnist, wrote um, a book a couple of years ago called The Road to Character. And in it, he wrote these words, if you live for external achievement, years pass and the deepest parts of you go unexplored and unstructured. You lack a moral vocabulary. It's easy to slip into a self-satisfied moral mediocrity. You grade yourself on a forgiving curve. You figure as long as you're not obviously hurting anybody and people seem to like you, you must be okay. But you live with an unconscious boredom, separated from the deepest meaning of life and the highest moral joys. Gradually, a humiliating gap opens between your actual self and your desired self. I think what happens in that gap between our actual self and our desired self is oftentimes something that is sort of like social media. You know, we just present the best picture of who we are to the world, don't we? You've seen one another's Instagram feeds. I mean, we're all beautiful people who our noses never run, you know, our children are all perfect. You know, we do the most exciting things in the world. I mean, that's the picture we have of the world. I mean, Twitter, you know, where would we be without Twitter? How would we know the things that matter in the world without Twitter? I mean, you wouldn't know what Kanye and Kim named their little girl if you didn't have Twitter. It's Chicago, just in case you're not, following them on Twitter. It's Chicago. They named her Chicago. They'd like you to call her shy, though, if you would. You wouldn't know that Ed Sheeran got engaged if if you didn't have Twitter. I mean, you go on and on and on. You know, there's so many things we wouldn't know if we didn't have Twitter. But do they really, really matter? Is, Is there a gap there? that we're missing. I'm not putting down social media. I think it's awesome. I want to see your grandchildren. Uh, Show me, and you want to see mine. I know you do. You know, but my point is just this, that we can live our lives focused on what people see of us that is external and temporary, or we can live our lives looking for the way that we can lay our resumes down, lay our credentials down. And instead, what David Brooks says, do you want to live with resume virtues or eulogy virtues? 
When Paul wrote these words in Philippians chapter 3, 1 to 6, he's writing his resume virtues. From this point on, from 7 through 12, which we'll look at next week, he's writing his eulogy virtues. He's considered all as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so think for a moment about how your joy gets robbed. Who robs you of your joy? Is it people from inside the camp? It can often be that. I mean, that was Paul's frustration, people inside the camp who, was, who were robbing the joy of that church, of those first century churches. Is it people close to you that are harmful to you, that you know that they're harmful to you, they're not moving you along, and, and you've put up with it, and that's robbing you of your joy? Are you that person? that finds fault in what everyone else does, and you're the joy robber? Is that you? I've filled both of those roles in my relationships. Is it the fact that you think you know more than anybody else, and are you always the smartest person in the room? I'll promise you, you'll rob everybody's joy if that's the case. But you know who robs me of most of my joy? I'm going to name the name. This is a person that's in the room. Forgive me for calling it out. But who robs me of my joy more than anyone else is Vernon Rainwater. Because I'm often my own worst enemy in this because I like to check off the boxes. I like to make the resolutions. I like to get the stuff done. I like to have the appearance of having it all together. I like to show, I like to look like I get, get the whole deal, understand the whole deal, have no imperfections. I like that. And I, I pursue that. And I want you to think that. And I'm missing the point when I do that. Because here's the deal. We seek a stronger hope in following a presence. You know, people don't change because they just decide to be better. If that happened, then New Year's resolutions would work. No, people decide to change, St. Augustine said, because they elevate their loves. And he said, you will eventually become what you love the most. And so that's all Paul's trying to say to us here. And I want to give you a minute to think about this. And so Jenny and Susan are going to come out and they're going to sing and play for you a song that gives you just a moment of meditation to think about the things from which you may need to be delivered. The love of your own comfort, the fear of having nothing the love of worldly passions, the need to be understood, a need to be accepted, the fear of being lonely. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's some other things. But would you take this time and just ponder what the Holy Spirit might show you in your own heart?